You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To work with wood changes the formal character of the matter, shaping what once was a tree into a house here and a table there, and at the same time, the wood works the carpenter, giving her the calluses and habits of hand that set the maker apart from other sorts of human beings. The same goes for the work of the banker and the butcher and the barrister. The the work of farming is at the same time the work that the human being does on the earth and the work that the earth does on the human being. And that's precisely what makes Stanley Hauerwas' new book, The Work of Theology, so interesting. We get to walk alongside a master practitioner and see what kind of work he has done and the work that's been done on him. And today, Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him to talk with us about all kinds of theology work. Welcome back to Christian Humanist Profiles, Stanley. Hey, I'm very much, I'm very pleased to be here, be, be with you again. That was a lovely statement. Oh, thank you, thank you. I'm going to start with a fan's question because I've been reading your books for 20 years now, and I know a lot of our listeners have too. We know your catchphrases, and you might not like that phrase or not, like we know our favorite lines from our favorite plays. And one of them that we know is that you don't want students to make up their own minds. You want to give them a mind worth making up. But in your opening chapter of this book, on learning to think theologically, you say, and I quote, I do want them to think like me, only differently, end quote. What differences do you hope to see and hear as you, as you read your students' work and as you see your students serve another generation of the faithful after Christendom? Well, I assume that every generation faces different challenges than the past. And while you don't start over every generation, it does mean that what was said oftentimes must be said in a way that is different. So given the challenges before you. And therefore, when I say I want my students to think like me only differently, I mean I want them to care about what I care about in a way that enables them to discover, as I've had to discover, what they need to say given their deepest convictions. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us, and... Yeah, I mean, one or two examples that I think would do nicely, I mean, of some of your students who are thinking like you do, but differently, because I, I love to hear teachers talk about their students. Well, I, I had, I was at, at a retirement event for me uh, a couple of years ago. I, not, I was told that I directed at that time over 71 dissertations. <laughs> and uh, it took me back. I didn't realize I had uh, uh, directed that many, and, and there's now, now a few years down the line, a few more. Um, so there's a lot of students out there that uh, are I who have been kind enough to trust me to give them direction, and yet know that that means they must go on on their own way. If you, 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 I think about people uh, like uh, Charlie Pinchas at mm-hmm. the University of Scranton, who 
this book, uh, for example, on theology in action, is a much more sophisticated account um, of Aquinas's work on how description is everything. Um, I think Charlie is well beyond what I have suggested about those matters. Mm-hmm. I think Bill Cavanaugh at the um, uh, uh, now at the Paul University uh, as a Roman Catholic has certainly um, thought through issues, uh, for example, um, in terms of Eucharistic uh, uh, disciplines that make a difference for how you understand our modern economic lives in a way that I haven't done. I think people like uh, Kelly Johnson at um, the University of Dayton have drawn on some of my suggestions about how to read the Catholic social encyclicals and gone well beyond what I've been about in Mm -hmm. that regard. Donna Bennett, um, the um, also one of my students at the University of Dayton has done wonderful work on um, uh, an area of life that's absolutely mystery to me, namely social media. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm the least technological person you've ever met. Um, so, uh, I mean, I could go down the list uh, um, mm-hmm. of how students have taken a hit here and taken a hit there and turned it into a good deal more than I ever have. Good, good. One of the things that I thought was most interesting, again, early in this book, is that uh, you take up a challenge that people have, have issued in years past and written an essay on the Holy Spirit and stayed on that topic. Uh, our, our listeners know that I teach at a, a college affiliated with the International Pentecostal Holiness Church, although I'm not myself Pentecostal. So this chapter was especially interesting for me. What difference does it make for pneumatology to insist on biblical narrative first and foremost? I, um, I, if I might just put in a plug, Will Willeman and I have also just uh, published uh, um, a small but I think fairly powerful book simply called The Holy Spirit. Oh, good, good. And, uh, Abington uh, did it. And so uh, here toward the end, I've now written fairly extensively on the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, Romans 8 is absolutely a decisive text for how one thinks about the Holy Spirit. People usually go first and foremost to um, uh, Acts 1 and 2, but, mm-hmm. and of course the Spirit is the birth of the Church. But I think Romans 8, in terms of understanding how the Holy Spirit is a crucial um, uh, name for God, is um, found decisively um, present in Romans 8. I, I, Will and I start the Holy Spirit book with a sentence that says, um, it is good to remember when writing about the Holy Spirit, one is writing about God. 
because I think oftentimes the, the language of the Holy Spirit has been used to underwrite subjectivistic experiences that um, direct the work of the Spirit away from the Spirit's um, mission, which is to rest on Jesus' body. And, mm -hmm. and resting on Jesus' body is to rest on the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the practices that I found most curious, you know, like I said, coming from outside of this tradition into it, uh, is the strong tendency to say that, you know, God gave me this Bible verse, or the Spirit told me to say this, and so on and so forth. And I, I thought that the emphasis, like you just mentioned, on Romans and on Acts and on the Gospel of Luke, uh, is a counterweight to that in some respect. I mean... Well, I, I, I don't talk that way. Um, I, I, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to tell people that do talk that way that they're mm -hmm. making a fundamental mistake, but mm -hmm. I do think that whatever is said about the Spirit having underwritten, underwritten certain of my own projects has mm -hmm. to be tested by other people, and, uh, uh, therefore I... I worry a bit about how the grammar of those kinds of acknowledgments of what the Spirit has done can invite narcissistic uh, um, manifestations of, that we're deeply tempted to, deeply too tempted to for our lives in a way that um, uh, is quite, uh, can be quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to say that you never get rigorously philosophical because I saw what happened at the end of this book to Nick Healy, but I will say that your chapter on agency as a theological category was a special treat for me. Tell our listeners why, in terms of philosophical ethics, it's so important to be, quote, incorporated into a community of practices that can provide the formation of our agency through a truthful narrative, end quote. Um, I... Uh, that that's one way. The word that's not used there is character, but mm -hmm. I I think that agency and character are mutually implicated, in the sense that we don't we don't make up our lives on our own, but our lives become our own through being initiated into narratives that make it possible for us to claim that which oftentimes happens to us as us in a way that gives us the habits that enable us to go on in a manner that we can make our lives our own. So um, uh, I think agency, interestingly enough, is not so much prospective, namely, uh, I'm going to get my thoughts right and understand the situation right, and I'm going to make the right decision, and that's agency. But agency, I think, is much more a matter of being able to look back over our lives and claim that 
that oftentimes what we thought we were doing at one time was, on reflection, more happening to me than what I was doing, yet I'm able to claim it as what God was doing for me in a way that enables me to have a life that makes sense. And that's one of those things that when you talk about memory and when you talk about prayer, uh, you know, those are things that, you know, make me think of Boethius simply because the Consolation of Philosophy uh, is one of the books that I teach most often. Oh, I and, I, and, I, and I revel in the contradictions of an infinitely timeful God that the Consolation pre- presents. But I'll admit, when I read your chapter on prayer and about time, I really hadn't thought about the connections between those two like you suggest that I should. What does it mean to be a people of prayer if Augustine and Boethius are right about God's infinitely timeful character? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a um, time, as you know, I, I quote Augustine in that uh, chapter that mm-hmm. he knows what time is um, as long as he doesn't think about it. I know what it is if I don't have to explain it. <laughs> but, as as, but as soon as he tries to think about it, he's not sure he can say what it is since the past is already the past and the future is not and the present doesn't exist. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so how do you think about time? You think about time as, as I think, God's gift to, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it is the gift of God's patience with us to give us the ongoing duration that enables us to have lives that um, are timeful. So time, I mean, part of the problem of thinking about time is it's, is it, it's tempting to think of it as um, as a thing, but time is not a thing. Uh, uh, time is, as I tried to just say, a gift, and um, uh, that is the possibility that makes our lives um, narratable. So to be able to tell a story about who I am, uh, a complex story to be sure, is what time makes possible. And of course prayer is to take the time God has given us to thank God for time and for the patience that God has toward us as sinners that we will be, as well as um, um, our becoming patient with ourselves and one another. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you mentioned just kind of in passing in this chapter is that you're not talking about an atemporal notion of God, but an infinitely timeful, and I, and I keep using that, that phrase, and it sounds awkward coming out of my mouth, but I think it still works. What's the difference between those two proclamations about God? Why... Why is it better to say that God is timeful rather than atemporal? Um, because, as I um, um, suggest, that um, 
what it means for God to be eternal is that God is more timeful than we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so God is not timeful in the way we are because God is eternal. Mm-hmm. But through, but God is able to be present to us in Christ, fully God and fully man, in a way that timefulness is not foreign to his eternity. Mm-hmm. These are deep metaphysical puzzles. Oh, I know. I lo- That's why I love teaching Boethius, because students realize that they never realized these questions even existed. Right. But they, uh, I think uh, some of the best um, accounts of God's eternity and unchangeableness uh, have been articulated in recent time by David Hart in his The Beauty of the Infinite and mm-hmm. um, The Doors of the Sea. Okay. I've, I've read the former, but not the latter, so I've just added another book to my reading list. Well, I want to turn from, from soaring metaphysical questions to questions of silly terms, because honestly, some of the gold nuggets in this book are your skewering of some of the weird phrases that we 21st century Christians use. Um, I, I, I told you before in a previous conversation that I learned the practice of theology from a bunch of great teachers, among them Phil Kennison, among them Fred Norris. So I've read Phil's warnings against church marketing, but this is about your book. So what is your main concern with church growth as an industry, and what makes the term unchurch so dang silly? Well, Unchurched sounds like, well, these people out there are really Christians. They just don't know it. We need to get them to come to church, mm-hmm. um, uh, which means that you continue to underwrite the presumptions that you live in a Christendom in which everyone really already is Christian um, in a way that they don't need to think much about it, and we just need to be able to get them to become part of our um, set of friends. I think that that's just, I always say, why, why use the language on church? Why don't you just call them pagans? Because they live in the city? <laughs> and, but, but of course, the pagans were so much more interesting than most of the people that are, so, that are called unchurched. I mean, mm-hmm. pagans knew that there was a... a much worth killing and dying for. Most of the people that are unchurched just are um, uh, don't live lives significant enough to think anything uh, uh, matters that is about life and death. So mm-hmm. I uh, I think unchurched is just um, a way to um, suggest if you come to our church, you will be entertained for uh, an hour or so uh, without it having in any way to uh, make a difference for how you live. And uh, that's that's uh, uh, just a terrible result. All right. Well, I'm going to ask another self-indulgent question. It's not going to be my last today. Uh, this time as someone who teaches a whole mess of platonic dialogues for his paycheck, 
you say in this book that it is important for the church to have people who read Plato and Kant. Why is that? Um, because they are decisive figures that have shaped the uh, ongoing philosophical and theological reflection um, of our tradition in a way that um, must be passed on one generation to the next in the hope that we will know better how to use their work to explore the fundamental questions of human existence. So not everyone needs to read Plato, but some people do, and people of the church need to be glad that some people do, even if they themselves do not. Right. And so that's uh, um, that's the reason that I mean it has to do with the ongoing significance, not just of the intellectual tradition, but how that intellectual tradition is about um, uh, our exploration of the fundamental uh, challenges that face us as people of God. Good, good. I hope my students out there who are listening to this heard that. Um, like I said, there is so much in this book that I loved. One of them is the fact that you have a whole chapter on writing sentences. Uh, and you bring Stanley Fish into conversation with Friedrich Nietzsche, Ludwig Wittgenstein, Alistair McIntyre. And all along, I'm thinking about the cool ways in which Kenneth Burke and Richard M. Weaver could add to that mix. Uh, I'm sure, right. Oh, I was, I was enjoying myself so much seeing all the ways that the same writers taught you and taught me to think about writing. But I want to let you talk about this business of writing sentences. So finish this joke for me. Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, and McIntyre walk into a bar. McIntyre asks Wittgenstein, what did you mean, theology is grammar? And Wittgenstein says, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best I can do on a quick cut. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, talk, talk to us about how those three thinkers teach us about writing then. Uh, well, uh, I mean, the sentence that I uh, um, concentrate on in that essay is Robert Jensen's sentence. God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having previously raised um, Israel from Egypt. And I, what I want to do by focusing on sentence like that is suggest that that is a very particular politic that produces a sentence, uh, such an elegant sentence like that, because the crucial word is whoever, because what? Jens is doing with that word is challenging the presumption we know who God is prior to having raised Jesus from the dead. Mm -hmm. And then that, then that opens the door to a typological reading of the Old Testament because he doesn't say um, uh, Israel was liberated from Egypt but raised Raised yep. is the resurrection word that gives you a sense of how to read the Old Testament Christologically. So 
I think that by concentrating on a sentence like that, you begin to have a sense of what it means to recover a whole um, um, way of life of a community that produces that kind of grammar. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Later on in your book, you, you turn from writing sentences to a series of questions, I want to call them, about whether or not political theology is even a good idea to embark on or not in the way that people tend to embark on it in seminaries. And in that chapter, I thought, and you can tell me I'm wrong here, I thought I heard an echo and maybe even a parody of William F. Buckley. Uh, you're, you're, you're responding to Alex Sider, so I might be misplacing the allusion. But at any rate, you're not standing astride history. Well, let me read the passage. Quote, above, I re referred to Sider's suggestion that Yoder's anti-Constantinianism is best expressed in terms of the church being, being the true meaning of history. That is an extraordinary claim requiring a people to exist who know how to drag their feet when confronted by those who think they know where history is headed, close quote. How does this vision relate to and differ from William F. Buckley's? I, I wasn't thinking of William F. Buckley when I wrote it. Okay. Uh, but uh, I was thinking of Richard Newhouse. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Close, so. Where uh, Richard was sure that America was God's lead society for the future of the world. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that was um, uh, an overreach that uh, presumed a greater knowledge of God's providential care of the world than in fact we have. And um, so, um, I mean, I, I had a deep love and regard for Richard, but um, he, um, I always told him he, he was born Lutheran, but he, he was a Lutheran and Calvinist drag. <laughs> he certainly had the presumptions of Calvinism to think you knew where, the, where uh, history was going. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So well, let me ask, I mean, just to go back to that metaphor, though, I mean, what's the strong difference between standing athwart history and shouting stop and dragging your feet when history is trying to, or when people are trying to drag history along? Um, this is, this is very, uh, it, it needs to be said very carefully. Mm -hmm. When I think about dragging feet, I think about African-American lives under the conditions of unjust uh, discrimination and how African-Americans learned in the face of injustice to drag their feet in a manner that slowed those who would treat them unjustly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it rendered them, it, it gave a, a kind of way to stop them from working out their worst designs on those, their lives. So dragging the feet was seen, quote, as laziness, but in fact, it was a way to resist power in a, in a manner that did not kill those who were trying to kill you. Mm -hmm. 
So I think it's very important that Christians know how to drag our feet when um, we are confronting injustice in a way that prevents those who are perpetrators from working out their worst designs. That is worth thinking about. And unfortunately, I'm going to turn to another chapter. (laughs) I don't know whether you're going to take this as a compliment or not, but I mean it as one. You are a medieval thinker sometimes. (laughs) And your chapter on... <laughs> and your chapter on rights reminded me that before they became an ultimate term, to use one of Kenneth Burke and Richard Weaver's phrases again, they had a certain place as protectors of pri- of logically prior moral goods. Why is that history important for Christians to remember as we learn to deal with rights language? Uh, it's important to remember because um, otherwise you're seduced by the notion of an inalienable right of which there's no limit. And uh, you don't name the actual social practices that create the duties that that give birth to why it is that some people, some some claims about rights are perfectly legitimate because you have these kinds of duties. I mean, when people go back to the Magna Carta, for example, which mm-hmm. we're now celebrating, I can't remember. Like eight hundred years. Eight hundred years. I mean, people forget that the rights of the Magna Carta name the duties of the liege lord to their barons. So you were able to specify um, in great detail uh, what it was that um, the liege owed the baron in terms of the baron's loyalty to the liege, in terms of fishing rights, (laughs) in terms of land, and so on. And those were anchored in historical um, uh, practices that made it possible to say, therefore, I have this right because you have this duty. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the grammar, I think, makes sense. Once rights become an end in themselves, there's no end to it. So you have a right to your body. Really? Um, uh, I, I don't know where that came from. Um, and therefore, um, uh, you don't have an obligation toward the child, for example. So mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I mean, people, when, when you get inalienable rights going, people forget that oftentimes that is underwriting capitalist practices that you need to call into question. Mm-hmm. L- let me see if I can paraphrase that. I get for myself as much as for our listeners, but so, I mean, the, the structure that you're laying out here is that in medieval thought, rights were for the sake of higher moral goods, whereas when they become the ultimate terms, when they are not for the sake of anything, that's when they become arbitrary and ultimately detrimental. Right. I wish I said it that clearly. Well done. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, speaking of capitalism, because you turned to that in your previous explanation, one of the things you assert about capitalism is that it has a structural need to blame the poor for being poor. And you say that one of the resources that Christian theology has to combat that mentality 
is a, a passage from Proverbs that later gets picked up by the rabbis that to give to the poor is to make a loan to Yahweh. Now, immediately when I read that, I'm thinking about all the abuses of various televangelists over the years, but I have a hunch it might be a good idea irrespective. Tell me why. Uh, well, of course, I, I learned that from Gary Anderson's wonderful book on charity. Mm-hmm. And um, the rabbis um, um, centered on that passage from Proverbs as a way to defeat the presumption that if you didn't get repaid for the loan you gave to the poor, um, God would repay you because mm-hmm. you were actually loaning to God. And God's, uh, you can, you know, God, you can trust God. So mm-hmm. what I think that that passage does is remind you that this isn't just charity to someone who's poor, but this involves God. And that has become lost in terms of our economic relations, that it involves God. And so Gary directing attention to the rabbis focusing on that passage, I think is um, extraordinarily salutary. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting too, because I mean, it strikes me and and I, I know full well, I'm borrowing this from John Milbank, that this marks a departure from a sort of Greek ethics of magnanimity right. as the relationship between the rich and the poor. Right. What 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 happens to that? I, I, and I hesitate to use the word existential, but I can't think of a better word. The existential relationship between rich and poor, when God is a third party to that relationship. Um. I think one of the great problems of quote caring for the poor mm-hmm. is. Uh, and I go into the, in that chapter to much of the criticisms of recent aid to the poor, which has not worked. And one of the problems is that we want to do something for the poor, but we don't know how to live with the poor. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I was trying to envision is to think about the word with and the how it's an invitation to think very differently about uh, how it's not simply to do something, but it's to be with in a way that those that need help do not are not destroyed by the help itself, because mm-hmm. that's oftentimes it oftentimes happens that way. Mm-hmm. Well, again, even later in the book, towards the end, you make what I think might be the boldest prediction of the book when you write about why theologians should be funny. And oh. here's the prediction: in the generations after Christendom, Christians might just discover that we have a sense of humor. How do you see that playing out? Well. Uh, I mean, uh, at, at the heart of that essay is, or that chapter is um, my question: Why is it that Jews develop a distinct genre of of a humor, and we Christians don't? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and um, and of course it's partly because Christians persecuted Jews and humor became part of the defense. But um, I think it's also because Christians just take themselves so seriously in the sense that they think that if they don't believe in God, God won't exist. Jews know mm-hmm. better. <laughs> we didn't choose you. <laughs> we got chosen. And therefore, yeah. they don't think they need to protect God. And I think that there is a deep um, uh, um, basis in that presumption that you don't need to protect God. And that you can, I mean, in the Psalms, I've I've done everything you wanted me to do, um, and my enemies have beaten me to death. My even my friends turned their back. What are you doing? But you are God, and I am not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that that kind of recognition that you are God and I am not, I think, is a basis for a humor that uh, I deeply admire. Uh, in terms of the Jewish tradition, and I wish we Christians could have a little more of it. Well, as you closed out this book, uh, I realized that you are the only person I've ever read or spoken to uh, who started thinking about retirement and turned to Otto von Bismarck. (laughs) (laughs) Right. What, What habits of thought does our talk about retirement betray? And what better ways would you offer to think about retirement? Um, well, probably um, uh, a, a discovery of what the community needs for some people to step aside to allow younger people the opportunity that we have had because we now have another task, and that is to remember the wisdom of the community. Mm-hmm. And so you don't retire. Uh, you're just given something different to do, given your own um, bodily strengths and changes. So, I, I mean, on the whole, I think the language of retirement is really quite um, perverse. Mm-hmm. I can't get the hang of it myself. <laughs> well, one thing that I that I certainly can't imagine you partaking of, and if I'm wrong, by all means correct me, is the sort of culture of the adolescence of old age that you critique in this chapter. I mean, what what sorts of habits of mind does that culture develop that ultimately you think that Christian theology should have something to say? Against it. Uh, to make the old adolescence again is just perverse. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you get to go to Sun City and play shuffleboard? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, uh, you continue to have duties uh, uh, and uh, to um, the young and to the community in ways that uh, uh, mean that you don't... Uh, uh, you don't get to uh, quit um, uh, hard to have one's life taken up with uh, uh, the kind of shallowness that's associated with Sun City. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. Uh, what do you want our listeners thinking about God, church, retirement, jokes, or whatever else as we head out the door here? 
I think it would be with, with the kinds of thoughts that you began, namely that um, we are um, in, we are embedded in tasks through which we learn the skills to shape lives in a way that respond to the sharp edges of life in a manner that call us into community. So our various acquired skills will be of service to one another as an ongoing people across time. And the fundamental, the most fundamental service we have is to be present to one another as we die. And that that is um, a wonderful gift that being God's people makes possible. Stanley Hauerwas, thank you for coming back on Christian Humanist Profiles. Uh, thank you. Uh, your questions were terrific. Thank you, thank you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in and downloading. The book is The Work of Theology. It's from Erdman's Press. And this podcast, Christian Humanist Profiles, is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying to you, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.